Good morning. The scripture reading today is from Philippians 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseas and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Good morning. It's been just a little over two years now since I retired as one of the pastors here at Spring Garden Church. And when I hit the one-year mark, when I, I was coming up to the first anniversary of my retirement, I thought it would be a nice idea to write an article for Delve, our church's monthly magazine. Just kind of giving you an update on what life is like in retirement. I was looking at it kind of as a, a pastor's report from out in the pasture. And I, I had some good things to say, but somehow that month I missed the Delve deadline and didn't get it in. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll do it the next month. And the next month I thought some more, had some more good things to say, and I missed the deadline. And the month after that, I missed the deadline. So to this point, I have now missed at least a dozen consecutive Delve deadlines for the article that I decided I would write. All is by way of saying, I love being retired. Because when you're retired, you don't have to worry about making all the deadlines. Nevertheless, when I was given the opportunity to speak about the opening verses of Paul's letter to the Philippian church, I jumped at the chance because so much of what Paul says in this opening to his letter, particularly as he talks about his affection for the people of Philippi and the way that he prays for them, are some of the very things that I would have said in my report from the pastor out to pasture. And so I thought, I can speak about this, and in the context, share some of my own thoughts and feelings, thus killing two birds with one stone. Which, when I say it out loud, suddenly strikes me as being really a terrible expression. I have no desire to kill any birds, so I want to assure you that no birds will be injured or harmed in the course of this talk. When we read through Paul's letters, it's, it's quite common to read him describe his affection, love, and care 
for the people that he has shared ministry with and the people to whom he has ministered and especially led into the gospel of Jesus. But this affection for the church seems to have a special flavor in his relationship with the Philippians. And so we read further on from what Darlene read to us in chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. During the course of many years of ministry, I would go to pastor's conferences or go out to coffee with some of my colleagues, and it was not uncommon at all to hear pastors talk about their congregations as if the church was their pain and their frown. And I'm going to confess to you that there are probably times when I felt like serving the church was a pain and a frown too. But I also want to tell you that serving God or serving people in that way is just no fun at all. And so I can relate to what Paul is writing here to the Philippians because after we retired at Spring Garden, Debbie and I wanted to give God a chance to show us whether or not he wanted us to worship elsewhere. And we spent more than six months visiting different churches and we met some great people and and sat through some great worship experiences. But just as Paul said, I long for the Philippians, we found ourselves longing for you because we have that same kind of love and affection for you. And I want to tell you truly, I know that anything that happened here while I was here was the Lord's work, but nevertheless, I am very, very proud of you. You are my joy and my crown. We see this affection early in the letter too, because Paul wanted to begin his conversation with the Philippians by telling them how much he cared for them. And he said, I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. A few verses later, Paul tells these people what he actually asks of God when he prays for them with so much joy. And so we pick it up in verse nine where he says, and this is my prayer that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Paul's letter to the Philippians has often been called the letter of joy. Because so much of what he writes to the Philippians uh, uses the word joy or the word rejoice. Those two words appear over and over again in the few pages of this letter. But I'm not sure that that was exactly the point. I had an email from Pastor Greg earlier this week. I think it came on Wednesday morning when he said to me, he emailed me and he said, Gene, What's your takeaway on Sunday? 
And it just felt like the good old days because every Tuesday morning or every Wednesday morning, Greg would wander down into my office and say, Gene, what's your takeaway for Sunday? He learned early on it was a bad idea to ask, what are you talking about? Because he would get the whole unedited sermon, all 45 minutes worth. So if he just asked for the takeaway, he was then able to plan the music that would support what I wanted you to go home thinking about. And I suspect that if you asked Paul, if Greg had wandered into Paul's office as he was writing this letter and said, Paul, what's the takeaway? What do you want the Philippians to read this letter and, and go away thinking about? I don't think Paul would have said this is a letter about how to be happy or this is a letter about how to be joyful. I don't think he would have said, well, what I'm doing today is giving you five steps to happiness. And if you follow these basic instructions, if you live this way, if you do these things, you will be a happy, joyful person. Because I don't think Paul thought that was the point of life. In our culture today... I think we have come just broadly, not just in the church, but all throughout our culture, we have come to the conclusion that happiness is life's purpose. That if I can be happy doing something, that's something I ought to do. If I can be happy stopping to do something, that's something I ought to stop doing. That if I come to Jesus, Jesus will make me happy all the time, and that's why I ought to come to Jesus and I, I think Paul would have said the purpose of life is not being happy because no one's happy all the time. The purpose of life is being useful. The purpose of life is being helpful. And so he, he says that the point of, of the prayer that he's praying for them is that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Paul was filled with joy because he had been useful. He could look at the Philippians and, and how they had come to belief and know that he had been helpful in that. I think it's one of the great ironies of life that if we go around chasing happiness... If we feel like happiness is the purpose behind the decisions we make and the things that we do, we end up feeling depressed and frustrated because it doesn't quite materialize. But if instead we approached our life the same kind of way Paul approached his and said, how can I be useful? How can I be helpful to the world around me? That we would discover joy as a byproduct of our usefulness. But I want to give you a warning here. If you turn that observation into a motivation and you say to yourself, I'm going to get involved in service or I'm, I'm going to get involved in serving the church or, or in some kind of service out in the community because that will make me happy. It won't. Happiness comes from a byproduct of wanting to be useful. If we make it our purpose, if we make it our goal, we just get frustrated. Serving and helping people can be very joyful, but if I expect the people I serve to make me happy all the time, I just get frustrated 
Because the hardest part of every job, as I'm sure you already know, is dealing with people. The purpose is to be useful. And joy comes as a byproduct of that. And so Paul is praying for these people that having produced the harvest of righteousness, that they might produce the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He wants their lives to count. But he knows that when their lives count, they will experience joy. So I think that if Greg wandered down to Paul's office and said, Paul, what's your takeaway? I think that what Paul would say, my takeaway from this letter is that I want these people to really understand and have insight in Christ. This is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight. I want people to understand what it means that in Christ, in Jesus, God came to us, that Christ was with God, that Christ was God, and yet Christ emptied himself of all of the beauty and wonder and power of being God in order to enter our human lives so that he might be useful to us. So committed was Christ to entering into the fullness of our life, that he not only was born and lived with us, he died. And he died one of the most painful, humiliating kinds of deaths you can possibly imagine. For people who believe in God, who believe in a supreme, eternal being, the notion of God willingly dying, it's an absurd impossibility and yet it was the strength of his love and desire to help us that brought Christ to us and while I think Paul wants his readers to get this understanding of Christ and the coming of Christ to us I think he would say but that's still not the takeaway that's still not the point what I want people to do is to understand Christ so that they can use their understanding of Christ as a model or a template for their relationships with each other and with the world at large. I want them to reflect on how Christ came to us, how Christ emptied himself to come to us so that they can go into the world as Christ, producing a harvest of righteousness so that they can be helpful. I don't want them just to have a theology that fills their thoughts. I want them to have a theology that uses their hands. If our theology, if our beliefs about God do not lead to a change in how we live, then that theology is not only useless, it's false. It's false, even if it's completely accurate. It's false to the reason why God gave us the scriptures and why God sent to us Christ. 
Paul is not writing this letter, bringing them insight and understanding so that the Christians of Philippi could be right. Paul is not writing this letter so that the Christians of Philippi could know what is true. Nor is Paul writing this letter so that the Christians of Philippi could use their understanding to win debates about Christianity and spirituality and thus argue people into belief in Jesus Christ. That's not why Paul is writing this letter. Sometimes Christians take what we know and what we understand and we weaponize it. We use it as a way to prove our moral and and spiritual superiority over other people. We see this in in something that Canadians are very aware of right now. We're deeply aware of the horrors and the abuses of Canada's residential schools that were led by people of faith. And at this ugly moment in this talk, I'm going to interrupt what I'm saying. And we interrupt our regular programming to bring you a special news announcement. Just a little more than a week ago, my daughter-in-law and my son had their second child. I have a new grandson. He's extraordinarily good-looking. Which, of course, he's a Temple Meyer guy, so you know, you're going to expect that. And his name is Milo Michael. And now we return to our regularly scheduled program. And the reason I bring that up is that about a week and a half ago, just a day or two after Milo was born, uh, we had some good friends over, and we, we were having a responsibly socially distanced visit together out on our back deck, and these people are also recent grandparents. And somehow the issue of, of the residential schools came up, and my friend who's a relatively new grandmother said, I don't know what I would do if someone came to take my grandchild away. I just don't know what I would do. I I would fight tooth and nail to keep them from taking that kid. And if, if I knew that they were going to a place where there was going to be all kinds of horrific forms of abuse, uh, if I had to kill them, I would. And this may not be very Christian of me, but I said, you know what? I, I almost certainly would be willing to go burn down their churches. That's probably not the best thing to do or the best response to make, but I get it. That may not be the Christian thing to do, but, but I get it. If people in the name of Christ had abused my child or my beautiful grandchildren... I don't know what I would do. Now, here's the point. If you and I deplore what happened in the residential schools, and I certainly hope that we do, then we really need to examine how we think about people who don't believe what we believe. 
we really need to examine how we think about Buddhists, how we think about Hindus, how we think about Jews, how we think about atheists, how we think about fundamentalist Christians or perhaps those progressive Christians who are just heretics in sheep's clothing. Because we've all known Christians who've demeaned others because they didn't believe the same thing that Christians believe. True Christians, right Christians. Christians who have read and digested the insight and understanding of the Apostle Paul. What happened at the residential schools began not with an action, but with a thought. With the thought that because we believe certain things about Jesus, we somehow, we may not be superior people, but there is something superior about our culture, and there's something superior about our beliefs, and, and this... If we're superior, or if, or if our beliefs and culture are superior, then that means that those beliefs and those cultures are somehow not enough, that they're inferior. We disagree with ideas. We demean people. And when our way of thinking about people who do not believe what we believe causes us to demean those people. We are doing exactly what the people in those residential schools were doing, except maybe just at a different level. But we're the same. And so if I, if, if I demean people who don't believe what I believe. I'm one of them. And I think that, that this incident of the residential schools should call us not only as Canadians, but as Canadian Christians to ponder how we think about those who have different kinds of belief from us. Because our theology should make us helpful, not coercive and abusive. Our understanding of the coming of Christ ought to make us come to people around us, think of people around us, respond to people around us the way Christ responded to people around us. So I really loved something Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy had to say last Sunday when he was talking about how Jesus said that if, if someone offends you, you should, and they don't repent about it, you should treat them like a tax collector. And then we stop and think about how did Jesus treat tax collectors? He loved them. He welcomed them to the table. Matthew, who wrote that very gospel, had been a tax collector. Paul was writing this so that people's lives would be transformed into the love of Christ by an understanding of Christ. And Paul knew as, as he wrote this letter, as he had this great love 
for the people of Philippi, he knew they weren't perfect. He knew they weren't getting it right all the time. He knew that they were mistreating each other sometimes. And in fact, there's a place further on in the book where he will confront some of those people about it. And when I say that I'm proud of you and that I love you, I, I mean, that's all genuine and true, but don't think for a minute that that means I think that Spring Garden is a perfect church. I was a pastor here for nearly 20 years. I know Spring Garden is not a perfect church. But Paul also understood that even in an imperfect church, God was still at work. And he said, I thank my God every time I remember you. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because you hold me in your hearts. I don't think you're perfect, but I think God is at work in you. And I think God is at work in you to deepen your understanding and your insight into the nature of Christ so that you can deepen your ability to render on the day of Christ a harvest of usefulness to the Lord. I think that understanding of Christ has been growing continuously for the 2,000 years since the Apostle Paul wrote this letter and needs to continue growing. I am so delighted and proud of the leadership here at Spring Garden now. Pastor Greg and Pastor Sam and Pastor Abby and Pastor Jeremy and all of the other deacons and elders, which includes my own wife. I personally have been to my last deacons meeting ever, I promise. I'm so proud of you because I know that you're carrying it further. That your insight's growing deeper. That it was time for me to step out into the pasture. Because you needed new voices. And you've heard those voices. You're listening to those voices. And, and you're growing in depth and in insight and in usefulness. I'm so proud of you. Brings tears to my eyes. And it's not because I necessarily think I did a wonderful job here. I, I mean, I'm happy with the job I did here. But because I know this. The one who began a good work among you long before I was ever on the scene. Will bring it to completion. On the day of Christ. And so I pray for you that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best so that in that day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God.